0: Please hear this prayer. Lord, open our hearts and minds as the scripture is read and your word is shared. We may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. The first reading is Psalm 119, verses 1 through 8. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord, Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your people, or precepts, to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart. When I learn your righteous rules, I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me." The second reading is Mark, chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. And they sent him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, "'Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. God.
1: Thank you, Marilyn. So this happens in the week of Jesus' death. And he's come to Jerusalem to much, fan, much fanfare with the Palm Sunday parade, people greeting him and shouting, Hosanna, save us. But while some are looking to Jesus for salvation, others are looking at him as an enemy. After Jesus threw the money changers out of the temple and taught crowds that faithfulness, not personal profit, was the fruit that God expected from his people, the chief priests and the scribes are aghast at him. They're threatened. Jesus' message threatens their positions, their status. And even when they're offered the way of God, they won't take it. They won't even consider it because they're so concerned with protecting what they have. And at that same time, they're, they're again and again afraid to actually move against Jesus, though, too, because it would cost them the respect of the crowd that's marveling at Jesus. He's overturned the tables of money changers and says that they're making God's house a den of robbers, and they don't arrest him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. He tells a parable that we heard last week showing how they've rejected God's messengers and even then are seeking to kill God's son because they're so unwilling to give good fruit to God. It's clearly about them. So they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. So they left him and went away. Those chief priests and scribes, leaders of the temple bureaucracy, they're the ones who sent these, sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians. They sent them because they were afraid to go themselves. And that's why Mark writes that Jesus knows their hypocrisy. These men tell Jesus that he isn't swayed by appearances. The chief priests and scribes have been swayed by nothing else. They tell Jesus that he truly teaches the way of God the chief priests and scribes, they've given no thought whatsoever to the way of God, instead hoarding up God's blessings for themselves into self-seeking position. Jesus will condemn them for their preoccupation with appearances shortly after this. Beware them, he says. They will receive great condemnation. But like I said, they don't come to Jesus themselves. They send others. They send some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians. Now, those names, you know, maybe that sounds a little familiar, but don't just think of this as a single group, you know, generic enemies of Jesus. Who these people are matters. The Pharisees are really different from the, from the Herodians. Actually, they're, they're kind of rivals, maybe arch-nemeses. So I guess Jesus brings people together, right? <laughs> uh, it's like if the, the players on the, the Astros and the, and the Rangers were both annoyed at an, at an umpire. You know, it's that, that level of difference. It's like if, uh, if state and Michigan fans get together to cheer against Ohio. That's, that's what we're talking about. Okay, so I might hope that even here, Jesus brings together different kinds of people, say Michigan and state loyalists. Well, in Jerusalem, it was opponents of Jesus that he was bringing together, briefly. The Pharisees, they're a religious movement. They're people who value the Bible, and value God's law and really seek to understand and teach it. They started the synagogue movement of prayer and scripture teaching gatherings in Jewish villages and diaspora communities, but they've also built up a body of tradition on top of God's word, that expands the commandments and adds details God never intended. They believe that we must obey God, which is right, but they also believe that we're made righteous by obeying God. So when Jesus comes with a message of obedience to God, yes, but also a message, first of all, of trust in God, they can't stand it. They don't think we need to be saved. They just need to follow the law and the extra details they've added in. Well, that makes the Pharisees polar opposites of the Herodians. They're not a religious movement. They're a political movement. The the Herodians don't care a whit about God's law. They have zero interest in obedience to God. The Herodians. Morality is out the window for them. They're straightforwardly about wealth and power. They're called Herodians because their allies are loyalists of the Herodian family, a dynasty of men ruling over Jewish people in Judea, Galilee, and the area, led by a man, Herod the Great, who named three of his sons Herod. (laughs) See a little bit of self-interest there. They're Jewish, sure, mostly, but they're more interested in getting in on the benefits of approval by the occupying Roman Empire. It's people like the king who ordered the massacre of infants in Bethlehem after the Magi alerted him to the birth of a promised king. Or Herod Antipas, the ruler of Galilee, who married his brother's ex wife and executed John the Baptist at her request. So they're together. The Pharisees and the Herodians. The Pharisees don't like the Herodians for their promotion of pagan Roman culture and immoral Roman practices. And the Herodians don't like the Pharisees for nagging them about being moral. (laughs) They don't like them for their exclusive obedience to God. But Jesus has brought them together. So they begin here with flattery. That's, that's That's a way to begin a conversation. Teacher, we know that you're true. Something that temple leaders have been totally disinterested in. And do not care about anyone's opinion. Something the temple leadership is obsessed with. People's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Well, that should have been the whole point. That should have been enough to just listen to Jesus. If he teaches the way of God, then listen to what he teaches. But here's their question. Their trap. Their dilemma. Is it lawful, they say, that is appropriate to God's law? Is it appropriate to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they're actually on opposite sides of this. They're both asking Jesus this, but the the Herodians, they absolutely, uh, absolutely support all the little people paying taxes. That's where their income comes from. And the Pharisees, resenting the promotion of Roman culture and power paid for by the taxes, they really don't want to pay the tax, even though they aren't in a position to avoid it. So does Jesus offend the Herodians, make himself liable to arrest for opposing attacks and Roman rule? Or does he offend the Pharisees and make himself look like just another collaborating self-promoter resented by the people? So which is it going to be? Is Jesus going to lead the revolution or join the establishment? Or will he, like politicians are so expert at today, have some clever answer that doesn't really address the question? And honestly, I think that too many people have read this and thought that Jesus takes that third way, you know, and then applauded him for his cleverness. But that's not what it is. That's not what it is at all. Jesus worming his way out of this and not giving any insight from God would have been the worst possible outcome. That's not what Jesus does. Here's how he answers Why put me to the test, he says. The way to approach Jesus isn't with riddles or by testing him to determine whether he's worthy of you. The way to approach him is with faith, trusting that he is good enough, that that his approval makes you worthy. Well, bring me a denarius, he says, and let me look at it. Now, that's a silver coin. That's Roman currency. It's not a local currency. People used different currencies at the time. They're using different sorts of coins. The denarius, though, people used a lot. One denarius was a normal payment for a day's work by a hired laborer. You might use it to buy something at the market, but you might use another kind of coin instead. What you needed Roman money for was to make deals with foreign merchants. You know, someone's coming from somewhere else in the empire, they're not going to accept the local shekel. They need Roman money to exchange with non-Jewish Romans residing there or passing through, or to pay the head tax, to pay the Roman tax. Taxes were levied per person. There was no income tax, no property tax, There's a tax on imports and exports, but the tax that the Pharisees and Herodians are asking Jesus about is the head tax. Every Roman subject was supposed to pay the same amount in their annual tax, or they'd get roughed up by tax collectors who might take a little extra for their trouble. But you know what? Jesus doesn't seem to have a denarius, (laughs) right? He doesn't pull it out of his pocket and say, look at this. He asked them, Do you have one? Show me one. He's not doing commerce with Romans. He's not getting ready to pay the tax right now. He doesn't have a denarius, but they, the Pharisees and Herodians there, they do. (laughs) They do. Well, they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? Well, our coins and bills have the faces of long-dead presidents and other American important American figures, but theirs, like Canadian and British currency today, had the current ruler on them. Caesar Tiberius is there. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Who? This guy. (laughs) This guy, right right there on the coin, whose likeness and inscription, it means whose name and title, is this? Well, it's Caesar's. So Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God, the things that are God's. So pay the tax. That's the basic answer. Yes, it is lawful. We should pay taxes. There's a, there's a story, I, I can't believe it myself, but I've heard it, I heard it told uh, as if it's true. One conscious, conscience-stricken taxpayer wrote the IRS, Dear Sir, my conscience bothered me. Here's the $175 which I owe in back taxes. And then came a P.S. If my conscience still bothers me, I'll send the rest. (laughs) (laughs) Well, our conscience should bother us in that circumstance. Without getting into the weeds of Christian commercial ethics, money should basically be seen as a means of exchange and not a good itself, which means that you don't own money. You use money to exchange something like your labor at work for something else, like groceries or a house. You're using the denarius, but you don't really own it. Whose is it? It's owned by Tiberius Caesar. And actually, if you're willing, could you take out a dollar bill? If you have a dollar bill with you, really take a moment. Look in your wallet. I want you to take out a dollar bill, (coughs) or any sort of American bill, really. It won't work at the Canadian one. But take take out some 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 bill. Take it out and and, and take a look at it. I, I want to show you something. Don't worry, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna claim that there's some secret evil symbol on it or something. I don't I don't hold with the idea some fundamentalists have of seeing secret signs, you know, everywhere. Now I want you to look at it. Look at the words on the top of it. On the dollar bill, it's set off in a box, and the other other bills, it's it's written with a gap for the portrait, but it's at the top of the bill. Do you see what it says right there? It says Federal Reserve note. Have you ever noticed that? I don't. I'm not sure that I had. You know, when do we really look at a at a, at a bill? We, we use it. You know, it says Federal Reserve note though. It doesn't say Alexander Haynes note. <laughs> not yet. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> if you use that bill, but you don't really own it. Not exactly. To some degree, it is owned by the Federal Reserve. Okay, so I may have gotten into the weeds of Christian commercial ethics a little bit. There's a whole body of thought from Aristotle to, to Aquinas to Luther. If you want to learn more, ask me any that you have a half an hour to two hours free. Uh, but the basic point is that render unto Caesar what is Caesar's means to give Caesar, means that, uh, to give what Caesar has given you to use back to Caesar on demand as well as, in the bigger picture, to give honor and obedience to the state that is due to the state. So, Federal Reserve has given us this currency to use. The Treasury demands it back in taxes. Pay the taxes. Pay the taxes. But also, in a bigger picture, give respect to the state that's due to the state. And again, you know, a great deal of respect to our $1 George Washington as a great leader, but Christians are not actually meant to be revolutionaries except in the most extreme circumstances. Despite the injustice of the Roman occupation, Jesus never supports the violent zealot resistance. Now a lot of the time there isn't there isn't really much controversy over over, you know giving giving honor uh, to the to the state. You obey traffic laws, you pay your taxes but in 2020, there was a lot of controversy. Should Christians obey the government's commands when we really disagree with them, or when we don't like the government? See, our church, we, we decided not to meet in person in 2020, just ahead of the state-ordered shutdown, and we resumed in-person Sunday services before most churches in our presbytery, but after it was clear that it was safe to do so, and the that the government was no longer prohibiting such gatherings. Those decisions were important, but they seemed pretty clear to our session. It wasn't, a, you know, it wasn't an acrimonious discussion. came to those conclusions with some serious thought. But other churches and other governments took different approaches. And this is kind of a contrast I want to make. Two churches, one in Washington, D.C., and another in Brighton. So Washington, D.C., in 2020, they banned church gatherings for longer than Michigan and much more strictly. And one church... Capitol Hill Baptist Church, wanted to meet in person. So they rented an outdoor location. They planned well-spaced seats, and they asked the district for permission to meet. When it was rejected, they asked a judge to intervene. They wanted to obey the law. They wanted to obey government orders, but they needed, were commanded by God, in fact, to gather on the Sabbath to worship, pray, and have the gospel taught outside of extraordinary circumstances. They would obey God while also... Render, rendering to Caesar what is Caesar's as long as it didn't violate the first duty to God Well, a judge agreed Not with the not with the, the commands of God But that that it was it was legal for the church to meet issued an injunction and they gathered as a church Another church in Brighton knew about the government's orders here banning gatherings and very publicly said well, we're not going to be following that and went from a pretty normal church to being one where the pastor gives a lecture on politics each week, in addition to his sermon. Obey God above man. That's a big point. And that's true. That's true. But God has also commanded us to be subject to the governing authorities. So I assert that Capitol Hill Baptist Church did a good job in obeying Jesus' command here, and the other did not. Don't be like the person writing to the IRS with a bit of back taxes. Pay your taxes And obey the law as far as you are able while obeying God first. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but the most important part is the last. And to God the things that are God's. Whose likeness? Whose image is on the coin? Well, Caesar's. Well, where is God's image? Where is God's inscription? On you, on you. This is why they marveled at him. Not because he had dodged a difficult question, but because he answered it. Give to God the things that are God's. In the very beginning, God planned and then did make humanity in his own image. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is a privilege. This is is a blessing. This is an incredible thing. You are made in God's image you are made in god's image that's why we that's why we heard this this reading from from a psalm too give your whole heart give your whole heart to god it said blessed are those who seek him with their whole heart yes really blessed blessed are those who seek him with their whole heart who give them whole, their whole selves seeking god with all they have following god with all they have trusting god with all they have praising God with all they have, relying on God with their whole heart. Those, those people, us people, if we seek God that way, we are blessed. There is great blessing in that. In Christ alone, my strength is found, right? All to Jesus. Totally give yourself to God. Don't give yourself to yourself like the chief priests and scribes seeking their own profit and refusing to yield fruit to God. No, yield fruit to God. Yield fruit to God, and this is how. By trusting Him completely. Give yourself. All you have, all you are, all your hopes, all your fears, all that bears His image, yield it to Him. You are not your own, but belong to Him. And this is a wonderful thing. So I want to close here with Words with the words of the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism, is an old Reformed Confession of Faith. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head, without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Let us do so, and so give to God the things that are God's. Amen.